Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the women who sew magic bands upon all wrists, and make veils for the heads of persons of every stature in the hunt for souls. Will you hunt down souls belonging to my people and keep your own souls alive? You have profaned me among my people for handfuls of barley and for pieces of bread, putting to death souls who should not die and keeping alive souls who should not live by your lying to my people who listen to lies. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against your magic bands, with which you hunt the souls like birds, and I will tear them from your arms, and I will let the souls whom you hunt go free, the souls like birds. Your veils also I will tear off, and deliver my people out of your hand. They shall be no more in your hand as prey, and you shall know that I am the Lord." Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. Today, we're going to talk about magic and specifically divination. Zellwyn, how are you? I'm doing great, Willie. Winter has come early to North Dakota, if you can believe it. This is early. I, You know, you, you say we're in a frozen tundra all the time, but this is actually early for us. Uh, there is snow on the ground right now, and we're actually kind of expecting it to get a little colder here in the next coming week. So I don't know if that's bleak or happy for a, a weather posting, but do with it what you will, right? <laughs> right. Um, we are uh, low 40s as we record it here today. So we'll probably be kind of uh, a little chilly for Halloween for trick-or-treating coming up. Um, but hey, that that's part of it. I think fall has settled here. We had one or a couple rather really odd days where it shot up to 80 degrees for some reason you know, that's fine. And everybody got sick. And nowadays, if anybody has the sniffles or anything, and I, and I use sick very lightly, if anyone has a mild cough or any sort of uh, drainage due to the temperature swings, well, it's everybody's put into uh, you know, a plague tent and uh, segregated from the community, I think is how is what we're supposed to do, uh, depending upon our county's warning level. And so that is uh, where we are. So yeah, fall is here out in the Middle West, and uh, that's, you know, the, it'll stay that way until until winter. You've entered winter, like you said, so expect the weather posting to be rather predictable until spring hits you sometime around next June. Uh, you're, you're not far off, actually, <laughs> yeah, because with, with, our, with the coming of spring, it's usually mud for a little bit, and then it gets hot really quick. So yeah, it's, it's probably going to be a long one this year, but... Hey, that's what the Lord wants. So, so how do you want to how do you want to delve into our our uh, spoopy topic for for this coming Halloween, there, Willie? Well, as you said, we're going to do uh, some spooky stuff because this is going to drop, Lord willing, before Halloween, and we know you guys like that stuff. Uh, plenty of episodes like this coming down the pike. I think we're going to get to some cryptids. I, I feel it in my bones. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna start discussing it, Zellin. But we wanted to take the time uh, pre-Halloween to uh, talk a little bit about the subject of witchcraft again, which we have touched on before, but specifically we want to talk about divination, because that's something that comes up often in the scriptures. It is forbidden, and yet in the scriptures we find things like casting lots and, you know, uh, the story with with some uh, arrows that we're going to talk about and things like that, Elisha and the arrows. So it can become a little bit confusing for Christians, Um, but... The main idea is that divination is forbidden, 
magic is is forbidden by Christians, and yet it keeps popping up throughout her history. So we'd like to talk a little bit about the biblical presentation of divination, and then kind of look at it throughout Christian history, what's going on at the time of the Reformation, for example, uh, during the Renaissance, and then the 19th and 20th centuries, uh, what happens. As we continue to point out, we are now on the rise in a certain period where people are beginning to become interested in esoterica again, and esotericism, whether they use that word or not. And so uh, it's important to talk about And that said, uh, this is not an indictment on the season of Halloween and that general spooky uh, flavor that we're supposed to have this time of year. So by all means, trick or treat and pass out candy. That's not what we're saying. We are saying, of course, don't play with Ouija boards, you know, and things like that. But enjoy enjoy the season. That's fine, in our opinion. But but by all means, you know, don't don't practice uh, witchery. And in my research for this, Zelwyn, I'm confronted with something that always surprises me when I find it, and it it shouldn't, but it's Christians um, endorsing the practice of divination Hmm. and and or witches, for lack of a better term, saying, well, the the church, Christians only condemn it because they don't understand it. And uh, by the way. (laughs) <laughs> and then they're the same people who will say, oh, when Jesus wasn't real or Jesus was a mushroom or something, <laughs> you, know, you know, claiming that we don't understand what they believe and then turn around and right. say that sort of thing. Right. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I think that Christians are interested in this kind of thing. Curiosity, excessive curiosity can become a little bit dangerous. And we've seen uh, men uh, fall prey to this who ought to have known better. And right. so we've kind of come into a period of, oh, this stuff is is harmless. This stuff, or excuse me, we go from a period of this is dangerous to oh, it's just superstition, to oh, it's just harmless fun, to now oh, it's powerful again, because right. in some of these public demonstrations we're seeing, we are seeing pagan divination rituals being used, which is interesting, and and, and it's it's funny it, the more. The more we talk about this, you know, we're going to get accused of like of some satanic panic kind of stuff, which, again, we should really do just an episode on that, uh, on the satanic panic. And I think it'll it'll kind of open some people's eyes. But let's not let popular culture um, affect our uh, uh, God given ability to to discern here. And so (laughs) what we're saying in agreement with the scripture in agreement with all of Christian history uh, is that. There is a malevolent force behind divination. It is forbidden in Scripture for a reason. And anything in Scripture that might appear at first to be some kind of divining is really not the case. That's really not the case. Sure. And so, so Zellin, uh, what are you thinking? Where do you want to? Where do you want to kickstart this? <laughs> well, where do we go from there? Right. <laughs> no, I. I and the reason why I think it's a worthwhile topic to bring up, too, is because, for one thing, uh, the topic came up in Bible study the other night for me, and we were kind of talking about what it meant, and so that's kind of what got me thinking about it. And also because, like you say, it is something that maybe we don't take nearly as seriously as we ought to, that we kind of see it as, oh, it's just either completely empty and therefore not at all harmless, or it's something that is, like you say, just kind of good fun. So, yeah, we do want to kind of delve through what the scriptures have to say 
about divination and then kind of go from there. But I think the the first question we have to ask ourselves is, you know, what do we mean by divination? Because that's sometimes a word that people don't really know what it means, right? Yeah, and I'm going to take, because like we said, this isn't really a, a general magic episode. So we're, let's take divination in, in its narrowest sense, which is, to, it means to foresee things and, and, and specifically to uncover hidden knowledge by a supernatural means. Right. The- so it, uh, it's uh, fortune telling or some other similar practice. Or, I mean, you, you hear you hear the word divine in it, it's, you know, it's spelled similarly. You know, it could also be understood as like trying to figure out what a god or what god is going to do next kind of a yeah, thing. Yeah, I mean, it's divinari, it's to foresee. Right, to foresee, to see what's going to come kind of a thing. So yeah, it is, it is in a sense an attempt to determine the future, to determine what's going to happen in the future. And and in many cases, not just for the sake of knowing, okay, that's what's going to happen tomorrow, like we're going to try to figure out what the weather is going to be like, but actually to try to exert some kind of control over that future. Right. And and see, and there's, and again, comes to our first difference between uh, divination and certain biblical things. Uh, prophecy sounds similar, mm-hmm. but it's biblical. There is kind of a biblical clairvoyance that is given to some people. Right. And that would be a gift of God, the ability to know certain things. That is not exactly hidden knowledge. Right. This is for God's own purpose. He is allowing someone to have this gift uh, to foreknow or to foretell what is going to come to pass. That is in Scripture. Right. And uh, I think tied to that is the spiritual gift of discernment, you know, being able to to perceive things in, in, in almost a supernatural way. But again, very different. This is not a commercial venture. This is not this is not a means by which God is manipulated, and that really is what divination is trying to do—to uncover that which God has not revealed to anyone. Right. And it's seeking to do that through the power of witches, which we would argue is either fraud or the work of demons. And demons, yeah, you know, we're not saying demons can see the future, but demons, we don't know how their knowledge works exactly. Right. And what their communications channels are. <laughs> so, yeah, they could uncover hidden knowledge. That w- that shouldn't shock us that a spiritual being could, uh, or a network of them could uncover hidden things, which is kind of what you see with a lot of psychics and things like that, which, again, I think a lot of, most of that is uh, just uh, carnival tricks. Sure. But then, I mean, but there are times when we see it even in the scriptures where they try to uncover this future knowledge and it's done to their detriment, Right. I mean, I'm I'm just thinking of maybe like Saul and the the witch of Endor, for example, and how she is divining the future for him. I mean, that's that's kind of an interesting one. We'll, we'll probably have to get to that one, but you know, just this idea of as lo- if I can figure out what God is going to do, or if I can figure out what's going to happen next, then I can maybe change the way that I'm going to go about things so I so it doesn't happen. But it's always this idea of. I'm going to control what happens next. It really is this attempt to take into my hands what really only properly belongs to God. Right. 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 Yeah. And, you know, when the scriptures talk about this, you know, it it contrasts prophecy with a spirit of divination. Right. So Acts 16, 16, where Paul and Silas meet the slave girl who is specifically, you know, they say she has a spirit of divination. Right. And it brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. Right. I mean, this is a, this is a cottage 
cottage industry here. It is, and again, here's a case in Acts where it doesn't seem to be just tricks, right? Right. It seems to be an actual demonic influence uh, working. Well, I mean, if if we're going to try to just, and, and this is kind of coming down to the way we've often approached uh, topics involving magic, if we're just going to simply dismiss these things as if they are only tricks, and that and for that reason they are kind of just harmless fun or whatever, we are opening ourselves up to potential danger. Because right. th- maybe the demons are even, in this sense, using our ideas that, oh, this is just harmless as a way of deception, right? Right. And I should mention, I believe Acts 16.16, 16, which is translated as divination, is that's literally Python spirit, as if that's going to make okay. the case any better, <laughs> you know? Well, and, and a Python spirit, just for, for clarification, is this idea that she became a literal vessel for this spirit to speak through her. She was just kind of the, the tape yeah. deck and the, the, you know, the God got stuck into her kind of a thing. So it, it, it's still, it is still this idea of divination though. You know, it's really like, I, I would say we could spend the whole episode kind of uh, talking about the biblical verses that forbid it, but they're all pretty much the same, you know, <laughs> like don't it's Leviticus. Don't go to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out. Right. They're not. Shall, they're not. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his sons or daughters as an offering. Anyone who practices divinations or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or who inquires of the dead, uh, they shall not be found among you. These things are abominations of the Lord. You know. But people are going to say, but but that's Old Testament. Fine. Galatians. Idolatry. Sorcery. Enmity. Strife. Jealousy. Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, all these things mentioned as things that separate people from God. You know, um, right. Simon Magus, uh, who saw the gift of the Holy Spirit as, as just some form of magic that could be that could be bought. Right. <laughs> I mean, what, what more do we want to say? I mean, Colossians, you know, don't be d- deceived by the elemental spirits of the world. I mean, it could go on and on uh, to say nothing of, of revelation that says that, you know, sorcerers, among other people, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, which is the second death, which, you know, I guess we we don't believe in anymore. <laughs> and so when we start talking about the Bible and sorcery and divination, we sound very uh, witch finder general here. And that's OK, because that's how the Bible kind of speaks about it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and I, and I would point out that Acts 19 leaves no room for for a, a syncretism of uh, witchery, sorcery, divination, and Christianity. So Acts 19 says, Fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of them who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And so we're just going with sort of the the more general examples here. There are tons of specific examples of witchcraft being condemned, but Acts 19 is very significant because it shows what the fruit of repentance is here. Mm -hmm. And brothers and sisters listening, there are fruits of repentance. And so the, uh, the sorcerer or the sorceress who is who is converted to Christianity must leave that behind. Right. 
Right. And maybe maybe something we can delve in the next section into is like the specific examples, you know, to talk about, you know, what kind of a, what does divination look like in the specifics? Because, you know, we're talking kind of just in the general, like the Bible prohibits it. Well, OK, you know, we can say, sure, that makes sense. But now we need to be able to say, OK, but then what exactly does it look like? Because sometimes I think we, you know, we might even be tempted towards practices which are sort of uh, divinatory, even without even realizing it. And the way that Christians can even approach the things of God and using them as a way of divination, I think, can be a real danger. But well, give, give me an example of that. <laughs> well, that's for the next section, right? I mean, yeah, we're going to talk about that in the next because we're coming up on the first break. We don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, an example of like how do we approach the Bible? For example, do we? Do we approach it in kind of a divining God's voice or do we actually listen to the voice of God? And that is something that I'll unpack a little bit after the break. Maybe you can call that a teaser. But I mean, it, just these general ideas of we have to understand why this is a, a spiritual danger for us and why the Lord wants us to not do these things because he is the one who is ultimately in control of things, right? And we don't want to engage in things which are going to either take try to take what properly belongs to God onto ourselves or to delve into things which are properly, you know, the, the realm of demons. So, yeah, I mean, maybe it does sound a little bit alarmist, but we do want to take these things seriously, right? Right. And, and, and a lot of it depends on uh, the culture that, that you're coming from. Sure. You know, the, the, the kind of uh, spiritual dangers that like a Wisconsin living Lutheran bumps into is different from like a Haitian sure. or a Mexican or, or something like that. Just to be perfectly honest, I mean, look, I, I talk about Halloween as kind of a nowadays a quaint American, especially trick-or-treating as we know it, American tradition, or you could even say Celtic if you if you really want to. But, <laughs> but you look at Dia de los Muertos, which is a, a very different animal. Right. As far as, uh, but almost an aesthetically similar, similar thing that happens at the same time of the year. So different forms, we'll say, of Christianity have incorporated these kinds of things into them in a way that uh, Protestant American Christianity is not. And I think uh, even early Lutheranism looks different with regard to how she approaches, uh, or she approached, we should say, this subject kind of like uh, what England did and, th and things like that. But, you know, what have we absorbed as a culture? What are, what are the real temptations for us? That's something we're going to talk about in the next uh, segment. And nobody is immune to this, to be clear. It just manifests itself in different ways. And so uh, a lot of people are not going to going to actual witches and diviners and fortune tellers, except for our audience in New Orleans or something like that, maybe. <laughs> You know, although, you know, it's kind of surprising. You'll be driving through some stretch of West Virginia or something and see, hey, palmistry, you know, come have your fortune told, that kind of thing. So it, it is it is everywhere, to be fair, but manifests itself in, in different ways and with different intensities, we'll say. So with that, Zellwin, we are at the first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoke. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is the center of our faith life. 
Join us every Thursday for a new podcast available on iTunes and your favorite podcasting app. Follow us on Twitter at WordFitly. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash WordFitly. And check out our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. We thank you for listening and stay tuned for more WordFitly Spoken. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi talking about divination because it is that time of the year. So, well, that was a fun uh, introduction, Zellin. So now I think we want to look at some more concrete examples of what we're talking about and kind of take a walk through history here. So where uh, where would you like to start? Well, I mean, we see divination in several places, even in the scriptures, Probably one of the earliest examples we can think of would be Laban, for example, when he's dealing with Jacob, and he says that, you know, I learn by divination that God has been blessing me, yes. although we're not told exactly how he does how he does it. But then we get down to Jacob's son, Joseph, and the, uh, the problem of the silver cup of his with Benjamin, which he says that he uses for divination. So what, what is that story there, Willie? Genesis 44. So there's a silver chalice planted in Benjamin's bag, his poke, if you will, when he leaves Egypt. (laughs) So it's going to be used as evidence of theft, but it's the cup that belongs to Joseph, whose steward claimed was used for drinking and for divination. Right. So it's a, what we would call in kind of the modern esoteric studies, a scrying tool. Right. Right. Now, scrying... Is it's probably worth back in my in the old country we called it peeping, but but peeping has a totally different connotation now. So so or or if not peeping, seeing. Right. Uh, so it's the practice of l- like looking into a certain object that will give you some kind of revelation. Right. Right. Go go back and listen to the Mormon episodes if you want to know a little more. If you want to, if you want an example of that, <laughs> well, and, and the idea too. Sometimes you hear this with like tea leaves now nowadays. The idea is that the way that the liquid within the cup is moving is supposed to reveal something about the future. And once you understand it and you can interpret it correctly, then you'll be able to predict what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't. I think it's worth saying right out here. I don't think that Joseph actually uses it as divin- for divination purposes. I think he's doing it as part of his ruse with his brothers. But I, I do. Th- I mean, it is important that he's saying, you know, this cup is used for these kinds of purposes, right? Uh, yes, and this is a part of ceremonial magic. I mean, you're looking at ancient Egypt here, mm-hmm. all the way up to today. This features in nearly every magical worldview right. that there is. Right. And it's especially common in modern esotericism. Well, and you get, I mean, just not biblical examples, but historical examples of this sort of thing, not using cups, but like animals, for example, which were cut open 
and then the way that their in their their intestines looked or the way that their organs kind of laid out was supposed to say something about the future uh, that was called right. an that was called augering we, where we get right. the word inauguration from so i mean there's there's something mm-hmm. for you yeah not to be confused with the cutting of a covenant though no not at all not at all and then romans for example the romans were very off they very often used chickens uh, that they would take yep. with them and uh, the way that these chickens were eating or if they weren't eating or you know whatever was happening to them was supposed to say something about the future as well so i mean it's all of these you know interpreting what's happening or what you see before you as a way of determining the future that's that's this particular class of divination do you want to add some other examples to that willie or uh, no, I mean, I think that's a very uh, good one. Do, do you want like scrying examples or do we want? Well, sure. Yeah. What, what kind of uh, scrying examples do you have? Uh, from the Bible or, or just in general? Anywhere. <laughs> okay. Well, I think uh, I think Joseph Smith, to go, to go back to that, is a, is a good example. The seer stones that he claimed to have used mm-hmm. to see things. The Urim and Thummim, what he called a Urim and Thummim, to also interpret the tablets, at least in part. Although there is a Urim and Thummim in the scriptures uh, that is used to name uh, Joshua as successor, among other things. And see, this is where I think the conversation gets very interesting. Mm-hmm. So you have a biblical Urim and Thummim, right. which is the tool used to determine a successor in Numbers 27. Right. The, the Urim and Thummim is kind of mysterious in, in the Bible. But you also have like the breastplate of the priests and, and things like that. You have Elisha with the arrows and King Joash in, in Second Kings. So, so you have certain things used to determine an outcome in the scriptures. The easiest example we have or the is the casting of lots. Right. Now, Zelwin, but how would we how would we differentiate between divination mm-hmm. and these things we see in scripture like that? Casting lots in the scriptures, when they're done, even at God's command is often done as a way of putting the decision entirely in God's hands so that I, I asked this question of the Lord and then they would cast the lots and then however the lots fell, that would determine what the Lord had decided. Whereas divination, on the other hand, is more of an attempt to say, I'm going to figure out what God knows and I'm going to use that for my own benefit. So it really is a question of, am I putting this into God's hands or am I trying to take it into my own? Correct. We don't tend to cast lots in the church today, although the Orthodox do some, and the Amish, certain Amish groups will will choose officers based upon the casting of lots. I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with casting lots in and of itself. Proverbs describes it as kind of a neutral way of doing things so that no partiality comes into play. Sure. And so, but it, but in Proverbs, it's probably a little less of a spiritual exercise and I mean, closer to flipping a coin. Sure. But if we take, if we kind of push casting lots too far, you'll get, and I, and I heard a Lutheran say this not too long ago, that uh, Matthias was not a legitimate apostle uh, because, because, the, because they cast lots. Uh, but it says he was numbered with the <laughs> I mean, 11. I mean, what? Right. What, right. Let's, let's not let the Bible get in the way of a big brained moment here. <laughs> And so, you know, guys can push it a little bit, a little bit too far, but yes, you do have these things here in the Bible, but they're very different. And it's the same scripture that condemns like true uh, divinization. Let me give you another couple of examples, kind of a famous one. Uh, We have John D 
or do you want me to, or do you want me to wait till we get to John D? Well, let's let's wait with John D for a second. I do want to say one okay. more thing about casting lots, and then also I want to talk about a couple other examples before we get into more mo- more yeah, and modern I get times. To, yeah, and, and I've got a ton of examples in modern urban myth and stuff that I right. really really want to touch on, and we'll we'll get to them. We got time. I mean, we're only in the second segment, so right now I would say it is possible to turn the casting of lots into something like divination if we are abusing you know their purpose like someone who is trying to manipulate an outcome through them or someone who is trying to use them as a way of forcing god's hand you know this is Correct. this this might be an actual real danger so i'm i don't think the word fitly position is saying you know we should start casting lots to determine things but rather just saying that this was a legitimate practice of the scriptures which was God pleasing when it was used? Yeah, correctly. and when they cast the lots, they it wasn't a rigged game. It's not like the Spartan king going out and like, if I slaughter this goat here and don't get a sign, we won't go to war, or get a sign, we won't go to war. <laughs> oh, I didn't get what I want. Well, if I walk a thousand more feet and slaughter another goat, and this happens, then right. we won't go to war. Okay, <laughs> Let's slaughter another goat, uh, which is a historical example. I mean, I mean, this happened. Quite often in ancient Greece. Oh, and in ancient Rome, too. You didn't, and in ancient Rome, too. You, yeah. you don't like what the, the outcome that you got? Well, just do it again. Maybe maybe it was botched for some reason. So, I mean... Right. And see, that's when it leads to to kind of manipulative magic. Right. The, the, the idea that if you cast the right spell, the word casting, you know, right. is, is appropriate uh, in this conversation, then you'll, then you'll eventually get the desired outcome. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. The other example that I do want to talk about before we move on to, to more modern times is the issue of necromancy within the scripture, of uh, the, the magic involving the dead. Because necromancy within the scriptures is never presented simply as, I'm just raising the dead for the sake of raising the dead or something like that. Necromancy in the scriptures is always presented as a way of getting some kind of information that I'm getting some kind of divination. I'm getting something that the dead know, but I, that I want to know, right? Of course, we have the, the famous example of the, the Witch of Endor, and she's raising up and trying to call Samuel, um, and she ends up succeeding far better than she expected, <laughs> which might be an yeah. episode all in itself. But then you also have, like, in Isaiah, for example, this is Isaiah chapter 8, where he says, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and nec- and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not yeah. a people inquire of their God? Okay, so they should be going to God to find out things, you know, to ask questions and to receive answers, as it were. But they are going to the dead instead and raising them up or trying to raise them up as a way of getting an answer to a question which they have. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you want, I mean, we see this kind of thing still in modern times, but do you want to add more to, to necromancy here in scriptural terms? Uh, no, and I think that's very good. And, and all of these things are kind of butting up against each other a little bit, like necromancy and cleromancy and right. somatomancy and, and all of these <laughs> other things. Uh, theriomancy, we've already talked about, th- those kinds of things, you know, where you're using just any of these means. So, you know, in the case of theriomancy, it's uh, using the actions of animals, right? right. Somatomancy is like using—I don't even know how to how to explain this one. It's using animal parts. So there, there's living animals, there's dead animals, there's now dead people that you can use, right? 
But yeah, necromancy is a big one. It comes up a lot in, or one of the most notorious, at least in the Bible. Right. Which is again either the actual summoning of a demon somehow. We, I, I mean, we we pretty much agree. Although I, I I think in at least one case there's room for just a disagreement over what a necromancer actually raises. Right. But in general, it's either a demon or ventriloquism of some kind. Sure. Well, and then with the the chirping and muttering of Isaiah eight, you know, the 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 dead were supposedly doing these chirps and mutters, and that's and and then the necromancer would interpret them. And there's always that kind of go-between, isn't there? I mean, this idea that it's not that the dead are just speaking plain and we can understand what they're saying, but rather that I have to interpret what's being said. The same was true of, like, uh, the pythons, what we mentioned with uh, the woman in Acts or whatever, and having some sort of spirit within her. You know, the utterance which the, 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 the Pythia gave was always had to be interpreted by the priests. So, I mean, there is a lot of room for abuse in this. You know, it's not just a simple Mm -hmm. yes or no, you know, the kind of answer that we might actually get from going to God, you know, and reading his word. But it is always this kind of a, oh, well, what does this mean to you kind of a thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely true. And and again, this is something that seems, might seem a little bit foreign to a lot of our listeners, because in general, they are not going about and talking to the dead, and yet... There is kind of a pop. There, there are several pop culture versions of, of trying to conjure the dead that that have become kind of children's games. Sure, yeah, yeah. And uh, we'll 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 wait to talk about them a little bit later uh, in the segment or in 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 uh, in the next segment. Sure, so that's fine. But do you want to do you want to dig into some more modern examples? Something a little closer to our own times. I think we should also touch on early Lutheranism. You know, in early modernism. And kind of those issues, too. That would be something to hit on. Well, I, I want to start there, and then we'll go to D. Okay. Um, so let's talk about Luther. Okay. Uh, Luther shared the common views of witchcraft of his day. Right. You know, he talks about witches quite a bit, or what witches could do. And you, and you get this, like, in his... Go find his sermons on Exodus or Leviticus is where you find these. Or he talks about stuff in his table talks um, about witches and, and certain other kinds of magics. Uh, in one instance, a, a, a peddler of a certain religion that we won't name, who could, uh, who, who was trying to the king to sell a, a magic amulet that would protect him, those sorts of things. Right. But uh, Luther represents this understanding of witches as ones who poison livestock, right, or sour milk, mm-hmm. and, and things like that. I mean, Luther advocates the burning of witches. Right. Right. It's it's really kind of funny, like the pop culture notion. It's funny how Lutherans have this popular notion of Luther and this negative version of uh, pilgrims and Puritans. <laughs> On the in England and in the colonies, witch burning was relatively uncommon, much more common on the continent, and even advocated by Luther. But the pop culture version of Luther is, uh, you know, he was eschewing all of the supposedly superstitious uh, modes of the day. And then these regressive Englishmen just adopted them. It's really not what happens. Malleus Maleficarum, a German product, by the way. But <laughs> right, right. neither here nor there. And, and that's not, I'm not putting down Luther. I'm just simply saying that your, your kind of radical Lutheranism uh, is nowhere to be found in a discussion of Martin Luther and sourcecraft and, and sorcery. Right, right. Because he, he does take the Levitical view 
I think he actually says I would burn them myself. <laughs> well, you can get Luther to say anything if you try hard enough, but that's true. Yeah, we, we uh, we're some sometimes guilty of divining via Luther. <laughs> well, I mean, but but dealing with like those kind of early modern views of of witchcraft and the power of witches and stuff like that, and how they took it far more seriously than we do. I mean, we've gone through some very serious, you know, intellectual changes. You know, we no longer consider magic to be even, we don't even consider it to be real at all. It, it's not that it can be used for good or that it can be used for bad. We just don't consider it to be real. We consider it to be entirely a parlor trick. And of course, there are reasons for doing that. But at the same time, when you go back to these kind of earlier questions of, you know, why did they look at magic in this way? It's because they had a really a much different view of what, the way that the world worked, right? I mean, this kind yeah, because we kind of, whether we mean to or not, although this is starting to go away, we tend to view the universe and God's creation as kind of being a giant like machine. You know, the, you know, you can give this to give thanks to like uh, Newton and his and some of his influence on this. But well, no, um, I, th- I think I know what you're getting at. So you're talking about an older world right. that sees God and other spiritual forces at work within right. it. We are guilty, and we have said this many times before in different contexts, of functional deism. Yes, absolutely. That and, and so, oh, well, God has kind of wound up like, God, yeah, God is, is there. And we're very guilty of saying, of, of, try, of almost pretending as if God isn't active in history, but only active during the divine service. <laughs> and, and I think that that, that, that that is why we have issues with ethics sure. and issues with the law. I firmly believe this. But the biblical presentation is close is closer to what you have in the Middle Ages, and and it, and and to, and to some degree in the early modern time, because they definitely agree with the scriptures that there are forces that we cannot see at work. Mm-hmm. And I and I don't want to say too much more because it's gonna it just sounds it's it's not gonna sound quite like how I want it to come across, but. God is, is directing all things, but inside that sphere is this spiritual war that goes right. on. And I don't, and I don't want to present the spiritual war as if it's an evenly fought battle, oh, by no means, or yeah. anything like that. Yeah. Uh, but, but nevertheless, it is a battle as the Christian is, is part of. Well, and and for Luther, and I think especially in the early modern period, and frankly, it's a much more biblical worldview than our own. You know, they do see God as working very, very directly within creation, whereas I think we, you know, we still say that God is working in creation, but we always kind of hum and haw about it, and we talk about vocation a lot, and we always talk about how he's working through people, and he's always kind of just always behind the scenes, right? And so he's never yeah. really doing anything directly. He's always just kind of just, you know... Well, to the point that we can't even say he, he does things with the weather anymore. Right. Right. Yeah, no, he's he influenced this little part over here and that's what made it this happen. It's like, no, it's God sends the winds, God sends the snow, God sends the rain, yeah. right? And and the <laughs> argument's like, well, the cannon's closed. That closed cannon says that he does these things. We all agree the cannon's closed. <laughs> Orthodox, Catholic, everybody, we agree cannon's closed. Okay, we got it. <laughs> but God didn't die. And God didn't or and God certainly well, excuse me, he did die and rose again. So either way you cut it, he's alive. But my point is, is that he he's not absent. Right. Yeah. So we live in a world where whether you believe it or not, God is alive and working. And there are other forces contrary to his will 
that we cannot see that are also working against. And when you when you have a healthy appreciation of the fact that God is not absent in his creation and that, you know, he does actually do things directly from time to time, that's also going to influence the way that you look at, you know, maybe more malevolent forces. Maybe they also act much more directly from time to time. Um, and so they do take the the issue of witches and of demons probably far more seriously than we do for that reason, right? Right, yeah, which is another way to say they take God's revelation uh, more seriously. <laughs> Fair enough. You know, and, and again, we don't fall into superstitious worry about uh, finding a, a, a boogeyman behind every bush, a demon behind every bush or something. That's, of course, not what we're saying at all. But, you know, don't commit the error of... Uh, of uh, not believing anything happens. And and this is, and I know we're a little over time, but I do want to make this point. One of the things we hear all the time is we should be more like certain other parts of the globe who are more in tune with this. And that's a danger too, because it can become kind of superstitious in another direction, sure. which is how you get that magic mixed with Christianity kind of right. thing. I don't think most Western Christians disbelieve in spirit. Right. They just don't, they just doesn't do anything with their life. Right. You know, like they give a mental assent, which is kind of a problem we have, right? This is, this is kind of Protestantism's problem a little bit is that we've, we've made the faith only a mental assent to a set of proposed doctrines, which then as long as we mentally assent to them, don't necessarily have to have a, any don't, don't necessarily need to correlate in any action right. or any right. change. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and this is unfortunately the way that we sometimes approach even the big doctrines like, you know, I'm, well, I mean, just use this one. I'm justified by faith. Therefore, does it matter what I do? You know, why can't you just forgive me kind of a thing? Because I'm, <laughs> uh, you know, it doesn't, I mean, I can go back to doing what I was doing because it doesn't have any influence over what I'm actually doing right now. I mean, it's just this, I, we've, we have compartmentalized these things so much that, yeah, like you say, sometimes right. our doctrines and our actions don't actually correlate with one another. Right. I guess the, uh, the pagans turned Christians in Acts uh, 19 just didn't get the gospel. <laughs> All right. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more WordFitly Spoken. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. Uh, magic posting and divination uh, debating, I guess you'd say, uh, <laughs> here in our final segment. So we're 
ever slowly moving toward the more modern era. So, Zellin, uh, where do we want to start right now? Well, you mentioned Dee in the previous section, so why don't you tell us about him? Yeah, John Dee. Now, John Dee is a very interesting uh, character. He is a astronomer, astrologer, of course, an occultist, and he is actually the official astronomer and an advisor to Queen Elizabeth I, devotee of hermetic philosophy. We have a episode where we talk about hermeticism a little bit. We'll talk about it a little more here uh, on this episode, uh, the mystery religions that arise up in the uh, Renaissance era. Dee is uh, into sorcery, but is also allegedly a devout Christian. This is, this is the syncretism that we talk about that we see even in white cultures that we often forget about. And we associate syncretism oftentimes with the, what we now call the global south, and yet you, you find it here in England during the Reformation. Right. You know, well, this is, I mean, a little bit later, but it's, you know, it's still the Reformation era. We're Queen Elizabeth, we're Elizabeth I. There's still a lot of things shaking loose. <laughs> so, so right. But he's known uh, for his work in science and his work in magic. And frankly, at that time, the two are kind of indistinguishable in some ways and in some circles. We are not quite into full on modernism yet. We're still early modern. Right. Uh, but what he really tries to do is to commune with angels. He wants to talk with angels. He wants to learn uh, their language. And he claims to have an Enochian, an Enochian uh, language and that sort of thing. But he practiced divination. And some of his divining tools are uh, still there. His, his divining mirror, which was apparently an Aztec piece of obsidian uh, that, that had been made into like a mirror. It was brought to Europe, uh, which he used to try to see things, try to divine with. Um, there are wax seals and other things that he has, amulets, uh, globes uh, that he would use to try to to try to uh, divine with. So he has his own seer stones. And if seer stones is confusing you or scrying, think of like a crystal ball. That's probably the most stereotypical example we have of that kind of object, right? Right. The crystal ball. Do people, do kids still understand that reference? <laughs> Um, I don't know. So, yeah, that's John D. There are other things about him, you know, that I don't really want to get into because there are some kind of dark specifics here. But he he is using astrology and mathematics and uh, magical tools to try to basically plot a course uh, for the future. And so, I mean, think of it this way. He's not just doing this as a hobby. He's doing this as an official advisor to the Queen of England. Right. And he is immersed in this sort of thing. He is the, by far, the most notable English occultist and certainly the most high-profile one uh, of his day. And so when we think about witchcraft and sorcery and divination as something that's practiced either in dark kind of secret covens or more and more nowadays kind of as cheap little uh, diversions on the street corner somewhere, no, the, this this worldview reached to the highest levels of world government at one point, right? And, and not just in the ancient world, but in the what we would the early modern world, right? Right. Well, and I mean, you even see this sort of thing happening with, like, say, some of the early Lutherans. I mean, we've we've brought up the issue of uh, astrology already. You know, we make a distinction yeah. between astrology and astronomy these days. You know, astronomy being the study of the stars, astrology being, you know, that the stars influence our influence our lives and kind of change things. And we kind of dismiss astrology as being something that just isn't real. 
you know, you can still read your horoscope or whatever in the paper, but you just kind of take it for what it is. But I mean, even within early Lutheranism, you have very high profile figures, you know, I don't know if you want to say like uh, using astrology or, you know, right. I mean, it, I mean, I, I, Melanchthon, of course, is the one that comes to mind, right? That is, is one of the ones who does this. But I mean, so this isn't something yeah. that is just happening out there, like you say. This is something that is happening within our own circles, too. Yes. And I do think that D is a very extreme example sure. of this, to be fair. And it is interesting, and this is going to kind of push us forward a little bit in history. But so Elizabeth dies, and King James the uh, the sixth and first, uh, James Stewart. <laughs> is made king. And so at that point, D falls out of favor. And I do think that the Christianity of James is much more Protestant, much less willing to absorb some of this stuff. And uh, James is very much about, what do we want to say, rebuking witchery? Sure. And is, is very concerned about demonic influences. He wrote his own demonology. Uh, kind of cataloging these creatures and uh, warning against them. Sure. Although, and, and there's even works that he approve of that call a lot of witchcraft, though, uh, just carnival tricks, too. So you can already see things starting to change within England fairly quickly uh, from, between Elizabeth and James. And I, and I, and I, I don't have proof, but I'm, I would be willing to bet that the reason D falls out of favor with James is because of his uh, his involvement with the occult. That could be. Now, yeah. isn't, isn't this about the time with uh, a Becker and his book, uh, the, the Enchanted World? I mean, or is that... Yes, yes. So The Enchanted World, which maybe we should just do a whole episode on, right? <laughs> you know, Becker's going to be, I think, a little bit later, but it's the same era. Right. Because I think The Enchanted World is like 1691. That sounds about right, yeah. Yeah, so it comes a little bit later, but it's um, not that far removed. No. Right? To see how things are going to change within a little less than a century. Well, and I mean, and just to, to clarify there, too, Becker being oh, Dutch, if I remember correctly, right? Yeah, Balthasar Becker. Yep, he's, he's a Dutch theologian who, by the time of the end of the 17th century, is actually openly saying things like, it's all just trickery. I mean, that was kind of his whole point, that there was nothing to witchcraft, that it was all just empty. And so it's kind of the beginning of what we might consider a much more modern view of, of witchcraft. Now, at the height of the persecution of witches, there are men writing saying, don't burn them because it's all fake. Right. And others are saying, no, it, it, it's real. And then, you know, the truth is somewhere in between. Both are right. A lot of it is fake. But per the scriptures, a lot of it is real. Right. right. And so um, it's not something that we should be we should be dabbling in or, or should encourage. Now, this is the very interesting thing. You, you always have folk magic and things like that. But the Middle Ages does not have this giant collection of magical texts like what we see later. The real uh, birth of what we understand the magic of, of magic today is in the Renaissance. And in the Renaissance, there's an explosion of occult literature. And, and I find that very interesting. Sure. So that, that while, yes, you had magic and, and folk things before that, Renaissance magic is really the root of a lot of what we see today. Sure. 
So that, that's that's the return of Hermeticism and the mystery religions and stuff. Uh, you have the seven magic arts, the seven prohibited arts, right? Like negromancy and geomancy, hydromancy, pyromancy, aromancy, chiromancy, and the bone one. What is that? <laughs> Scapulomancy, scapulomancy. I'm not something sure. Like that. <laughs> yeah, um, but Renaissance occultism is allowed to spread. And uh, why, do you, why do you think that might have happened in the Renaissance? Well, I mean, I'm thinking guys like Paracelsus, too, you know, who is a kind of a kind of a, a polymath. You know, he's kind of a, a man of all disciplines kind of thing. I think I, my wager would be that because the Renaissance is on this emphasis of, you know, regaining of that which they believe has been lost, because especially because of the late Middle Ages, I mean, the very idea of renaissance, rebirth, that which is now coming back into existence, I think lends itself to this idea that, well, maybe we can also get some of this knowledge by delving into the forbidden arts or the things that we're not supposed yeah. to. You know, it's, it's interesting. A lot of it comes out of the ruling classes and the nobility, people with time and money. Sure. They have a fascination with like Egypt and Rome and uh, Arabia. And and so a lot of these supposed texts are coming out of those those uh, traditions, right? I mean, there's a lot of speculation about the true origin of Hermeticism, things like Rosicrucianism and Freemasonry and those kinds of things. But at the very least, we can all agree that they are Renaissance magical texts at the very latest. Sure, whether you believe in the ancient origins of them or not, but there are just tons and tons and tons of uh, esoteric materials coming out at this time. A lot of them now translated and available. Don't go out and read them. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying they're there. I mean, and, and I mean, you even get the idea of uh, Faust. I mean, he's kind of coming out of this general area, although he's made much more popular later. But this idea of the one who is, you know, seeking after a hidden knowledge, who's kind of divining for it, if you will, kind of bringing it back around to where we started and ended up losing something in the process. You know, I mean, this... The, the, the very idea is very much a modern thing. And the, I think the fascination with it, especially in the, the forms that we see, as you say, are very much a modern thing. You know, we don't want to look at the past and say, oh, look at those people. They didn't know anything. <laughs> There's some things that are really only modern problems, right? Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, we could go on for forever on Renaissance and uh, uh, magic because, I mean, there's just so many, so many texts, but we, we don't have time. And we're going to just go to the Baroque period and say stuff happened in the Baroque period, but it's not worth talking about. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> so, we'll, so we'll, I mean, it's there, you know, but it's not, it's probably not as celebrated as it is. Sure. One day we'll come back and talk about the lesser key of Solomon and things like that. But <laughs> I want to point out that it's a highly book related and ceremonial type of magic that you see at the, in the Renaissance. And so uh, things like Rosicrucianism, Freemasonry, other secret societies are highly ritualistic because they are a product of this era. Sure. And so uh, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Now, things begin really as the Reformation goes through in European culture. Uh, this kind of stuff falls out of favor with common people so that it's not practiced uh, in the New World so much, at least not places settled by Englishmen. Although, again, there is a magical worldview, but it's negative. It's bad. It's to be avoided. Right. Now, they might look for signs in the heavens, so to speak, 
uh, the Puritan might look for um, God to speak to them into their heart in some way. I don't quite consider that divination, but it's certainly a more spiritually inclined kind of religion sure. that we're talking about here. So American uh, Christianity does have its own folklore, largely borrowed from England and, and the Celts. And so there are ghost stories, there are superstitions, don't walk under ladders, black cats are evil, that kind of thing that we get from, from Europe. So th there is this understanding, and I'm really fast-forwarding a bit here, and everybody's wanting me to talk about the Salem Witch Trials, but I'm not going to do it because we're running out of time. <laughs> so <laughs> Salem Witch Trials happened, but we're but uh, Cotton Mather is my homeboy. <laughs> for so, another time, yes. For another day, because that deserves its own, its own special... Uh, special episode, maybe a shorter one, but its own episode. But by the time we get into America, Europe, and really at a certain point everywhere in the world in the 19th and 20th century, spiritism and spiritualism come into, come into play. And uh, certain celebrities are enamored with this. Imagine that celebrities being enamored with occultic religions. Ellen. I've never heard of I such a thing. I can't believe it. And a big part of what they uh, do is uh, divination. It's fortune-telling uh, through uh, other means. It's uh, necromancy in the form of seances. Sure, yeah. And, and things like that. And, you know, even Harry Houdini seeks out to debunk them because uh, Congress, of all things, was eat up with it hmm. in, in those days. They were, they were falling, pr congressmen were falling prey to mediums and things like that. Although Reagan had his astrologer. So what, you know, who am I to judge? Right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was, it was, um, and again, what you have is it's largely, at least most notoriously impacting people of wealth, people of class, people of celebrity. And, and usually when people like that adopt something, then the other classes sort of slowly adopt some of it too. So spiritism and spiritualism, very, very popular. And, and, and that's something foreign to us. Can you imagine like you have a dinner party or a hog killing? I don't know what you do out in North Dakota. Um, but yeah, you're having a, you know, you're having a, uh, you have people over for dinner and you know, you might play uh, what's a game you might play bunco or something like that. Afterwards you might play Rook or uh Parcheesi or uh What's the card game the Germans are always playing at church? Oh, um, yeah, yeah. I know. I, I, it's on the tip of my tongue. Sheep's Head? David Apple, yeah. let us know. Well, there's Sheep's Head. There's another one. Why can't Whist? I think of the name of it? Not Whist, not that one either. But not Pinochle. Anyway, <laughs> we'll think of it after we, we're done. David Apple, let us know what it is. And so anyway, where am I going with this? Okay, so you, you might do that afterwards. But what they would do is they would have a dinner party, turn out the lights, bring a medium in, and have a ceremony and summon the dead. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and a lot of it, again, pure trickery, pure buffoonery. But certainly Christians were condemning that at the time, but many others were seeing this as either legitimate or a harmless diversion. And that's what happens when this kind of thing becomes familiar then it becomes more dangerous because it's more accessible. And so that's why, like, in our in our day, what do we have? We, we don't have really seances so much, but you have children, what, what are called children's games, like Bloody Mary. Right. Are you familiar with Bloody Mary? We all know Bloody we Mary, right? We all know right? Bloody Mary, yeah. Yeah. But, but there used to be, like, Halloween games similar to that, too, where you would look into a mirror and light a candle and try to see the face of your lover, your future husband or, or wife in the mirror. Um, and now you can go into any toy store in America and somewhere between Monopoly and Scattergories is a Ouija board. Right. And that just, that's very, very interesting to me. 
Um, <laughs> well, I mean, let's say you don't believe that there's anything to a Ouija board. Fine. I don't, I mean, that's not really here nor there. But the point, and I think your point is, Willie, that is when we treat these things as mere children's things or mere diversions or, you know, whatever, then when we are encountered with something that maybe is, say, much more to it that isn't just trickery, we're very likely to dismiss it again and therefore run into spiritual danger, right? Right, right. Now, and I know we're, we're coming up on the end here, but there are more modern forms of syncretism, or at least forms that are growing bigger every day. Like voodoo's a big one. Right. But um, a lot of Americans, only in parts is voodoo big. But like in among Hispanics of, a, of, of in certain areas, you know, you... You have uh, like Mexican Roman Catholicism, folk Catholicism, we've talked about before. But among like the more Caribbean Hispanics, you've got something like Santeria, which has all forms of divination, like the Aoife. Uh, and, they're, and they're all about trying to contact and venerate uh, deities that they call the Oricha. But basically, they're just demons that will tell them the future or give them good luck. And so they have all these divination tools. And so places like uh, Florida and New York... And, you know, places where you find Dominicans, Cubans, uh, Panamanians, you know, things like that, you find large pockets of this syncretism uh, happening. So so magic is uh, is creeping into into our societies. Uh, the stories I've told before about being in Hispanic ministry and you're in these large Hispanic towns and you can walk into uh, just a regular grocery store and see a can you can buy a candle for Santa Muerte. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, I think we're in that circle again. We're coming back around to it, uh, an age, um, not in like, like the Renaissance, as far as embracing magical, newer magical things. Now, my question is, will, uh, an Anglo Saxon or Germanic people, what will they embrace? I don't see them embracing Santeria other than like a few celebrities like Madonna, like when she embraced Kabbalah or something like that. But, you know, what do you think is the danger for, the the people that I've mentioned here. Well, I mean, besides the fact that maybe our, our greatest danger is that we just become so dismissive of everything that we treat it as mere nothing. I think that is one of our greatest dangers. One of the things that I wanted to bring up, and maybe I'll bring this up as a, as a final thought, something that did come up pretty frequently in Germanic culture, it even came up in uh, Puritan culture from time to time, uh, something that I might call um, bibliomancy. This idea of if I just flip open a book, usually the Bible, then I'll figure out what God is te- is saying to me right now. Like I'm a- asking a question, flipping open the book and wherever my finger lands kind of a thing. That did happen within Lutheranism. And I, and I think it also happened within Puritanism. And I do think that we can treat the word of God in that kind of a divinatory way if we are not careful, because we end up using his word simply as a way of you know, answering these kind of questions, you know, trying to figure out, you know, taking control of the future, that sort of thing. And we end up abusing what it is that God has actually given us. So I do think that that is a real danger for us, that we don't want to fall into viewing the things of God as this kind of superstitious, I'm going to, you know, divine and take control of things. Right. Yeah, I don't make prayer a regular discipline, but I need something right now and I want it, so I'd better pray right. or I'd better give some money to the church or better better go to service so that God will grant this to me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> put you put you, you nailed it right on the head there, Willie. So. <laughs> right. 
Well, anyways, Ellen, this has been a fun discussion. Uh, maybe not as spooky as some guys would have liked, but uh, that's okay. We'll, we promise we'll get, uh, we'll get the proper level of spooky for you uh, on down the road. Uh, any final thoughts as we wrap up? Well, I mean, I think we can certainly revisit some of these topics later and kind of broaden out, especially with uh, maybe hermeticism down the line, if, if you, our listeners, want to delve into that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely hermeticism. Um, I feel like I always give short shrift to uh, like uh, Latin American Christianity. I'd like to delve into that a little bit more, the history and then how we got to uh, what it looks like in because the regions are, are rather different. I think we have to take that into account. Well, and maybe and maybe just talking about not so much in just Latin American Christianity, but also like voodooism and that sort of thing it might be something that would be worthwhile because uh, that is something right. we see, especially in the American, uh, you know, far south. Yeah, that's true. Well, hey, this has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I am Willie Grills, here with Zelwyn Heidi. God love you, and God bless. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily.